Today's message is coming from Saul, or Matthew, not Saul. Nobody. Long morning. All right. So uh, Matthew chapter 14, we're calling it Provider and Protector. Now, one of the silver linings of this pandemic has been uh, fulfilling my lifelong dream of becoming a YouTube sensation. Uh, Let's just say that uh, Bieber ain't the only Justin who's been making it big through this medium. Yeah, yeah, looking just as sultry as the Biebs. Two-year-old Harper from our church was doing one of the printable coloring pages that you can that you can find online at pencilgrace.org. And her daddy pointed to the coloring page, uh, pointed to a picture of Jesus, and he said, who is this? Right, Pointing to Jesus, and Harper looked at him and said, Justin! <laughs> so either she's a heretic or a child prodigy. You decide. Um, my almost 18-month-old niece, Maggie, when she'll see me on the screen, she starts freaking out, pointing at it, waving frantically. So now I totally get how the Beatles felt uh, during the height of Beatlemania. It's going to be hard for me to walk into the nursery from this point forward without all the baby girls just fawning all over me. Um, I'm, so I'm feeling the fame of the YouTube stardom, and I'm crushing it, at least with the three and under crowd. Um, But listen, no matter how big I get, you guys, no matter how successful I become through this, I will always be brought down to earth by my own family. They don't care how big, how popular, how successful I've got. They will, my brother and sister will look at me always like this, right? They know we know Justin before he was the big preacher man. Um, He's just Justin. Jeremy and Janelle are not impressed with my fame, right? You're the little brother that we used to eat boogers with that we took baths with. You know, you're the guy, Jeremy and I, playing basketball on the mini Nerf hoop in our house that always devolved into a WWF wrestling match. They, with the, those closest with me, like, totally relate to Rodney Dangerfield, where it says, I don't get no respect, right? Look how sad with no, not getting any respect. And this is exactly what Jesus deals with in our passage today. At the end of Matthew 13, Jesus, it says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And, and so Jesus, this, this has been, after teaching the parables to the crowds and the disciples, he, he, he goes home. And this has been his um, pattern where Jesus, it, look, it says, coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? So the synagogue was the local Jewish um, center of learning. And each town would have had one of these synagogues. And this was Jesus's pattern where he would go into a town and preach in that synagogue. Remember, Jesus said, I came first to the lost sheep of Israel, to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And we've talked about this. This wasn't that Jesus loved the Jewish people more than the non-Jew people. It was to the Jew first, then the Gentile. Not priority, but procedure. It was through Israel and the covenants he had made with them that he would bless everyone on earth. But notice here, Jesus does not receive a hometown hero welcome. Look at verse 55. It is, is, it not, is not this the carpenter's son? People in Nazareth. Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? They're like, we, we know who this is. This is the carpenter's boy. This is Mary's son. Like, we know this Jesus. And, and I love the way Jen Wilkins says it, that, that they are tripping over his humanity 
and in the process, failing to recognize his deity. They're going, we know who you are, right? We, we ate boogers with you when we were little. I don't know if Jesus, if the, the sinless man uh, ever ate boogers. Yeah, it's not a sin to eat boogers. That's what my mom always told me. Uh, I don't know how many times you're allowed to say booger in a sermon, but we'll just kind of press forward. He goes, they're, they're going, you put your pants on the same way we do, Jesus. We know who you are. You think you're better than us? They, yeah, we see that you're famous with everyone else, but we know you're just Joseph and Mary's kid. And what happens? It says they took offense at him. And in essence, they turned their backs on him. And Jesus said this. What, uh, we see in John, he came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. And so what we see here, and interestingly, it says, Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. I totally get how Jesus is feeling. And he says, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So Jesus does not perform miracles because of their rejection of him. And in fact, interestingly enough, this is the last time in the book of Matthew that we see Jesus teaching in a synagogue. He's actually going to make a transition here from the synagogue. And in chapter 14, he moves into the wilderness. We're going to see this shift where he's moving from primarily teaching to the people of Israel, and he's going to start speaking more and more with the Gentiles. This is also, this scene transitions us to the fourth act in Matthew's grand story. So I want to catch us up to speed. Remember, the first part was Jesus announcing the kingdom, that the promised king was born. John the Baptist makes the way for him. Um, He's coronated at his baptism. And then he announces to everybody what his sermon will look like in the, his, his kingdom will look like in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we see the spreading of the kingdom in chapters 8 through 10. That he starts healing, um, casting out demons, showing what this kingdom will look like as he reverses death. And he sends his 12 dep- uh, apostles out where? to the lost sheep of Israel, into Israel's cities to preach the good news. But how did they receive that? Not well. The third point we see is the the pushback, the opposition to the kingdom as Jesus's um, hometown, the crowds, the Pharisees start rejecting him. That's why we saw in last chapter, he starts preaching in parables. To the hard-hearted, he's going to put it in a way that they don't understand. And then today we're going to start this fourth of five parts of this book where we see the upside down kingdom coming into play. Matthew wants his audience to know this kingdom is not what you're going to, what you, what you think it would look like. That the greatest in the kingdom are actually the least. That the most powerful are actually the ones who become servants of all. And everyone that you would expect to believe They don't. The Pharisees, the leaders, um, and everyone you expect they wouldn't believe, they do. The Gentiles, it's it's the Pharisees and, or excuse me, it's the tax collectors and it's the prostitutes. It's the dirtiest of all that actually accept Jesus' teaching. And today we're going to see Jesus is saying in this upside down kingdom, it's going to be the very ones who are suffering persecution, the very ones who are dying for me, and it looks like they're suffering defeat. They're the ones who are really living the most victorious, fruitful, uh, blessed lives in my kingdom. Why? What sustains them? I will sufficiently provide for them, and I will sovereignly protect them. That's where we're going here in Matthew chapter 14. So the first thing we're going to see here is the suffering of persecution. Verse 1 says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, Uh, heard about the fame of Jesus. So he hears about what Jesus is doing. Now, Herod here, lovely man, um, the Tetrarch, is, his name is Herod Antipas. Now, remember the Herod that was killing babies when Jesus was born? This is one of his sons. And the reason they call him the Tetrarch, 
The, the Greek kind of Latin root here, tetra, means four, and the word ark, like over something, um, or a ruler. And so what happened is the kingdom, the mini kingdom of Israel was divided into four pieces. And Herod the tetrarch is king over a fourth of the kingdom. So there's a little bit of a, even a jab here. You're not the real king. You're a quarter king. And what we're going to see is that we're going to see Matthew showing us the false king's response to the rise of the true king, King Jesus. And look at what it says. He's hearing about the fame and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He calls Jesus John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now you go, well, wait a second. We've been reading through Matthew. When did John die? I don't remember that happening. He hasn't talked about that yet. So he's going to pause and give us a little parentheses and tell us about how John died. Verse 3, For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. So here's what's going on. Herod's, um, Herodias is Herod's half-brother's wife. It's also, in this weird, twisted little world, it's also his niece. And so what happens is he takes her from his own brother, who she's married to, for himself. So this is adultery, and it's also incest, which means it's wrong and gross. Um, John calls them out for this affair, and as the, he says, as the king of the Jews, the one that should be setting the standard, you, you're breaking the law. John has been preaching this repentance of lawlessness to the people and to prepare their hearts for the coming king, who John is implying is coming to take your position, Herod. Like, here's the real king who is coming, you dirty dog, you law-breaking false king. You are clearly not the king. And understandably, guilt-written Herod doesn't like this. Verse 5, and though he wanted to put him, John, to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So Herod finds himself in a pickle. He wants to kill John the Baptist, but he also knows the people love John. They will turn on him if he does that. So what happens? Well, verse 6, it even gets a little bit more disturbing here. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he uh, promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths, he made a foolish oath. We see this a lot lot of times in the Bible. His guests, he commanded it to be given. He He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. So... Um, what we see here is um, he has his niece's niece, who's probably a 12 to 14-year-old young girl, dance in front, and this is probably not um, the ballet, dancing in front of her perverted uncle that her mother is having an affair with in front of all these ogling men. Matthew is intentionally contrasting for us in this upside-down kingdom what the wrong kind of king looks like in light of the right kind of king. And in Herod's story, we see adultery. We see incestuous lust. We see um, the fear of man. We see foolish oaths that he's making. We see revenge and hatred and bitterness and anger. And we see a total disregard for God's law. Flying in the face of everything that Jesus had talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. What his kingdom should look like. Jesus is saying, when you live right side up in an upside down world, what's going to happen? You will experience persecution. And in the words of... of... So 
what we see here is also a shadow of what's to come. This is basically the exact halfway point between Matthew's in Matthew's gospel. And there's a signpost here. What we see here is the prophet John who has warned the people of what will happen to the wicked when they sin. He actually suffers their fate. He's the one that dies when it's the sinners that should die. And what's he killed for? Telling the truth. And at halftime here, Matthew's put up a very obvious signpost. If this happens to the forerunning prophet, what's going to happen to the truth himself? We, we see that the truth will be killed for the very sins of his murderers. And again, there's another pivot here where the last of the Old Testament prophets has been killed. And Jesus and his disciples are going to pick up that mantle of suffering. That they too will suffer persecution for what? Telling the truth. And in order to be able to endure this difficult road that he's calling them to, there's two things that his disciples then and his disciples today must know about Jesus and his kingdom. Those who have ears to hear, right? For we too are called to be truth-telling disciples. The first thing that they need to know is that he is sufficient provider. He's the sufficient provider. Verse 13 says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So Jesus sees the opposition coming, right? From his hometown haters, right? Jesus is just that little booger eater that we know. And from Herod, the ruler of this whole area, he's pushing back against him. So Jesus puts two and two together, right? He sees that if Herod killed John, the truth teller, and he goes, if he thinks I'm zombie John, I'm John brought back from the dead, then what's he going to do to me? As the forerunner goes, there go I. And it's not my time yet. He's not running from fear. He knows it's not God's time for him, so he withdraws. Now, notice what happens when he tries to get by him, away by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. There's still a lot of people that are pressing on Jesus. He's been healing. He's been hooking them up. Now, have you ever been bummed out or you've been mad or something going on and you just want to get away by yourself and it doesn't seem like you can do that? Like I've thought about parents during this quarantine time, like you're hiding in a closet and one of your kids pops up. It's like, I can't get away for a moment here. This is Jesus. He's like, I'm just trying to get away by myself and I can't. But I love his response. Look at verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. I'm so glad that our true king is not a Herod who is motivated by selfishness and fear and hatred of people, but is motivated by love and compassion, what he can give to people. Because as we'll see, in, unlike any of us, Jesus, people never wear Jesus out. He doesn't get sick of us and praise the Lord because I can be annoying, right? Jesus, Jesus. Verse 15, now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now notice here, they call this a desolate place. They're in the middle of nowhere. Now we're going to see there's about, there's 5,000 men here. And that's not counting the women and children. So you probably have 15 or 20,000 people in the middle of nowhere. There is no Chick-fil-A to run to. They don't have any food. This is a legitimate need the disciples are seeing. But Jesus here, he imposes a, a shelter-in-place mandate, if you will. He said, they need not go away. They can stay right here. You give them something to eat. Notice what he says. You feed them. What? 
out of, they turn their pockets inside out and they go, Jesus, we have only five loaves and two fish. Now, what's interesting here, this is, I think this is a beautiful picture of our ministry, of what we're called to do as Jesus followers. Jesus wants his disciples to see that they lack the sufficient uh, um, ability. They, they can't meet the needs of the people around them. They say, we've got five loaves and two fish. There's all these hands asking for um, resource. Now, how often do we protest like the disciples? I've only got 24, day, 24 hours in a day. I think that's how it works. Um, I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the ability. My battery is running low. I hear this all the time. People will say, Pastor, why don't we at the church do this? We need to have that ministry. Why doesn't somebody? I go, that's a great point. How about you? And then what do I usually hear back? 14 reasons why, well, this is a tough, this is a busy season for me. I can't. Now let's be real. The five loaves and the two fish, they're not feeding 20,000 people. The reality is we will run out without Jesus. This season has been such a reminder of how finite we are. We have a limited amount of resources, time and energy and emotional capacity. But this is what's so beautiful about what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, bring them here to me. What you have, bring it to me and watch what I can do with it. Verse 19, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the, le- the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now remember, one of the things Matthew has been showing us is how Jesus is the new and improved, the better Moses. And I think there's very intentional imagery here. We're being taken back to the wilderness, a desolate place where once again, the people of God, um, Israel, lacked food. And so what did God do? He sufficiently provided the bread from heaven to meet the needs of the people. And here again is Jesus, the bread of life, sent from heaven to sufficiently meet the needs of the people. And, and what's so beautiful about this, um, and you know, I, I think we want to be careful not to read too much into numbers, but it's an interesting thing to notice. Five loaves and two fish, that's seven. It's the number of completeness and sufficiency. I'm, I have everything they need. And, and how many baskets are left over? Twelve. Twelve tribes of Israel And here he's saying, I have come to sufficiently meet the needs. In fact, the leftovers, my scraps could sufficiently meet everything that Israel needs and more. And I love this. I also think, again, we're comparing the two two kings in this upside down kingdom. You think about Herod's banquet. Here was a banquet in, in a luxurious palace. And it's filled with what? Evil killing and lies and taking. And here's Jesus serving a banquet in the middle of the wilderness. And it's filled with healing and truth and sharing. He says, this is what the true king looks like, Herod. But then also we're looking forward because what does it say? He broke the loaves. And we're looking ahead to the Lord's Supper when Jesus looks at these disciples again in the eyeballs and he breaks the, the bread and it's pointing toward his sacrifice. It's going to be when my body is broken, that's the way that I'm going to provide, not just for you, but sufficiently for the salvation of the whole world. 
And in his great love for us, God provides everything we need through his son. Now, notice what's so interesting here. He says, then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and through them they were satisfied. So I love what's happening here. Jesus takes what the disciples have, which is ultimately from him to begin with, who created the fish, who provides the bread, He gives this to the disciples, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it back to them. He says, I want you, through me, you have enough to give. This is such a beautiful picture. Your job is to give away freely what I've freely given to you in the first place. And friends, Jesus has called us to do an impossible thing. I want you to go love God with all your heart. I want you to love your neighbor just as much as you naturally love yourself. I want you to make disciples. I want you to give, 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 give. And maybe during this corona craziness, you're feeling like the disciples staring at 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And you're going, Jesus, these numbers don't add up. I don't have enough to give. And maybe you're feeling the failure as a parent. You're trying to online school and you got your kids 24-7, nowhere to take them. You're feeling the failure. Maybe you're feeling the failure as a spouse, as you've been edgy, you've been getting at each other, you're feeling a rift in the relationship. Maybe you're feeling this this battery running down and, and you're like, I need to get through this somehow. And you're turning to some temptations that you hadn't turned to in a while. And Jesus says, to these people, you, you know the call. You know what you're supposed to do and you see yourself coming up short going, I don't have enough. And he goes, you're right. You're right, you don't. You don't. God has given us everything we need through the bread of life, through Jesus. And to each of us, he's given us sufficiently. Uh, he's given us Jesus, right, the bread of life. And he's also given each of us some money. He's given us some time. He's given us some energy. He's given us some talents and gifts and abilities. He's given us some relationships. He says, if you're prepared to give me the little that I've given you, I want you to watch what I can do with it. And watch him through you love that person that has become impossible for you to love. To forgive, to be kind, to be patient, to endure through a season that you're like, on my own, there's no way I'm making it through this. Now hear me. We do need to have boundaries in our lives. We need to know when to say no to people. I'm not saying we just always give every time. We need to come with eyes open, right? But most of us aren't guilty of just always giving too much and never thinking about ourselves. So I'm not too worried about that pitfall. But at the end of the day, without the sufficient provider, our resources won't be enough. That is the truth on our own as sinners. But because he has sufficiently provided, we can give generously because we have all we need in Jesus. And the last point we want to look at, the sovereign protector, sovereign protector. With God in the boat, you can smile at the storm. Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds, still looking for some alone time. So he says, you guys get in the boat, fishermen go have some fun. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. And we've showed this, that Jesus time and time again is getting alone to be with the Father, that the dance that we talked about at Easter. This also underlines what we just said about boundaries. Are we regularly recharging our batteries with God? If we're not plugged in, if the vine is not connected to the branches, we're not going to be able to bear fruit. 
We're, have an empty cup. We have nothing to spill over in other people's lives if it's not being filled up by our God. Verse 24, he says, But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So here you have the disciples. There's a strong wind. They're rowing. These are professional fishermen who can't get through these waves. You ever sw- try to swim in the ocean when the, you got a strong current and you just like realize how weak you are, how futile this is? Well, this is what they're, they're feeling. Verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, the fourth watch of the night was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Now, if any of us are still up at that time, you are not in your right mind, right? If you wake up between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., you are not seeing correctly. And look at what happens in the fourth watch of the night. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out with fear. So at 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., they're going, like they're looking, is that a, what did we just see? And totally understandable that they're freaking out, right? In the middle of a storm and there's somebody coming toward them walking on the water, not normal, right? So here are the disciples freaking out and Jesus's words to them, He says, immediately Jesus spoke to them and saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now what's interesting here, the Greek and the English don't really translate this well from what they would have heard at the beginning. He says, take heart, and it's even choppier than it is I. It would basically be best translated, I am. And once again, what claim is he making here? What did, he, what did Moses hear in the burning bush? I am. And he is about to do what only God can do. Back in Psalms, it says, He, talking about God, sent from on high, once again, the bread from heaven. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. This is rescue. This is salvation language. And also what's going on here, in Hebrew imagery, the sea represents chaos. These are desert people. And they're on a lake, but especially oceans or seas, they represented that with the idea of, of chaos. The things are just, you know, just wild and out of control. And in Revelation, it actually says... There will be no sea because there'll be no more chaos in heaven, right? Sorry, Bill Granger and you fishermen out there. Probably not what you thought of heaven. You're thinking that's the other place. Um, But what's he saying here? This is such a beautiful image. The God of the universe is walking on the waves. Jesus is saying, I have authority over chaos. Now, there's ever been a time in our lives where we have felt life to be chaotic, It's this season right here, right? All the order that we're used to, our normal schedules and routines have been abruptly and indefinitely altered. There's chaos economically. There's chaos socially. There's chaos physically with the virus. If there's ever been a time when our lack of control has been highlighted, it's now. And I love his words, what he said to Job. He said, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who is the God of order over a world of chaos? And Jesus is saying to his disciples, them, and he's saying it to us today, saying, I know you're in a storm right now. And on your own, you can't move forward. The rows are, the rowing is futile. But Jesus is shouting, but I am, I am here. I am with you. And listen, God is not looking at this coronavirus going, oh gosh, like, what, what am I going to, okay, okay, we can work with this here. Like, I can get you guys through without too many bumps or bruises, but I didn't see this one coming. 
Now listen, he is sovereign. That word means he is in charge. He's in complete control. He says, I'm the God of the universe. And with a whisper, I took the formless, chaotic waters at creation and made planet Earth. This, this virus is all part of my perfect plan. And, and I can't wait to show you the amazing ways that I'm going to use this to bring order into a chaotic world. And then we have Peter. Oh, Peter. Love this guy. Okay, get ready for some whiplash here. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Right, he's ready to go. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, starts coming to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. This is a roller coaster for Peter, right? This is always how he rolls. We see his desire to be with Jesus. We see his bravery, right? His chutzpah, if you will, in the Hebrew. Uh, his, but then immediately we see his fear and his doubt and his crying out to Jesus like a little boy. And what we see here is a beautiful picture of the faith life. Um, or maybe I should say faith half-life because <laughs> it seems like at least half of our lives, if not more than that, is not faith, but it's doubt and it's fear. It's a lack of, of belief. It's not hard to relate to Peter's roller coaster here, is it? And Peter's doing great until he takes his eyes off of Jesus and he puts them on to his circumstances, which, for the record, are legitimately scary, right? I mean, there's a storm, there are waves, and you know, he's in the middle of the sea walking on water, right? Again, we are living in hard times and we're not saying that the circumstances aren't difficult. We know that without the storm trampler, without the chaos um, uh, king, the king over the chaos, we would drown. And as only Jesus can, he responds with this beautiful blend of rebuke and encouragement. Look at verse 31. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? See, Peter, and I love the way that Jen Wilkin put this. She said, Peter wants to follow Jesus, but he's not good at it. <laughs> And we see this again and again. We're going to have this exact same scene play out with his denial of Jesus. Bravery, then fear when a little servant girl that he can out bench press comes up and says, hey, aren't you one of those? And once again, God is going to restore him. Jesus is going to restore him. I'm so glad that Peter isn't good at following Jesus because it's a reassurance to me who's also not very good at following Jesus. When I'm trying to follow him and I inevitably fail, I inevitably doubt, I inevitably freak out at the circumstances around me, taking my eyes off of Jesus, and I find myself in the midst of this chaos, I also find my great God of order striving toward me in the waves. That, that Jesus didn't just shame him and, and leave him to sink. I told you to keep your eyes on me, you moron, and walks away. He walks over toward him and he pulls him out of the waters, rescues him from the chaos. He knows that every time he pulls us out of the waves, it's a chance for our faith to grow. It's a, it's a chance to believe that the great I am really is. And this is the Christian life. The Christian life is not just have more faith. The Christian life is I will fail, but he will not. See, without the sovereign 
protector, our doubt will drown us in a sea of chaos. We won't make it through the, through the storm. But because he is sovereignly protecting us, we can walk by faith. And this is the beautiful promise. Not that there won't be waves, not that there won't be a storm, but that we can find peace in the midst of our chaos, order in the midst of turmoil, and know that in him, the great trampler of chaos, in the name of the great I am, we can make it through. And then he wraps up these things. Verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Order to chaos. Here's the point. Verse 33, and in those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. This is the whole point that we know and believe and proclaim who the great I am really is. This season has reminded us of just how fragile we are, that we see this one little virus can upend our global economy and our way of life. And I know that I don't have the stamina. I don't have the resources. I can barely make it through one more stupid Zoom meeting, right? Can I get a witness from the congregation? Amen. Amen. Let alone save the world from a pandemic or the more important saving of them from their own sin. I mean, I can't do that. Most of us are just trying to survive the next week. Some of us, the day or the minute. And it turns out I am not Jesus, but that's just the point. Jesus is saying to us, you are weak, but I am strong. And sometimes he's going to take us out into the middle of the desolate place to, to make that point. Sometimes he is going to allow us to stay in the eye of the storm so that he can show us who he really is in our lives. Now, some of us have been trying to be Superman. Some of us think we have enough, that we can sufficiently meet the needs of those around us. And God will graciously, tenderly show us how wrong we are. But just like with Peter, the perfect blend of tender rebuke and encouragement, he says, you can't but give me what you have and watch what I can do, the bread of life. So he calls us, go tell the truth. Go make disciples and keep your eyes on me. Father, we thank you that you sent the bread from heaven. We thank you that you have sufficiently provided for all of our needs and have promised to sovereignly protect us in the eye of the storm. And I know there's some brothers and sisters today who are feeling their lack of resource, their lack of enoughness. Father, I pray that those who have never received the bread of life would do so today to claim Jesus as their sovereign savior, protector, and provider, that we cannot do it on our own, that we would repent of trying and receive freely what Jesus has given us through his death and burial and resurrection, that we would go and give generously, that what you're calling us into in this season, to give, to love, to make disciples, that we would only do that through the abiding in Jesus that we're called to, that you would take what we have, bless it, break it, and give it to us to give it to others. May our cup stay full as we stay connected to Jesus, abiding in the vine. We thank you that you've rescued us, that it's not about, like Peter, we will fail, but we thank you that, 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 that our hope is not based on our ability to walk on water, but your ability, God, to keep your promises. You've told us that you'll never leave us or forsake us. You promised us that you'll keep our feet from failing. So Father, I pray that we would keep our eyes on you in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the desolate, desolate place, find you sufficient and be obedient in the process. It's in your beautiful, sufficient, sovereign name we pray. Amen.